I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus, Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. In his classic book, uh, Knowing God, J.I. Packer invites you to watch trains with him. He takes you to, plat- to a platform at York Station in England where you can watch trains arrive and depart for an entire day. And even if you pay close attention to those trains, you won't really be able to trace a discernible or predictable pattern of the train's movements. At best, Packer writes, you'll only be able to form a very rough and general idea of the overall plan. But that doesn't mean everything is random and meaningless. It doesn't mean that a plan isn't there. Packer invites you to leave the platform and go up the stairs above platforms seven and eight, and there, at least at the time he wrote, you'll find a diagram of the entire track layout five miles on each side. The diagram shows the signalmen exactly where every single train is. And all of a sudden, looking at this, you can can see why certain trains are stopped, why other trains are delayed, and why other trains keep moving. It's an illustration that reminds you, you and I live on the platform at the train station. And life often comes at us like those trains do, comes at us unpredictably. It comes at us with really no discernible pattern. And I think right here in John 13 is one of those moments on the platform in the train station. Jesus tells his disciples that one of them will betray him. But the thing is, no one saw that coming. And no one could discern why it was going to happen. So it's like the disciples are on the platform. But Jesus assures them that he's in the signal box. He knows what's coming and he knows the purpose. He knows why it's going to happen. And the key for the disciples is to admit their limits and to trust the station master. That's what Jesus aims to do in their situation right here in John 13. And through this passage, he aims to do the same for you. We might summarize it like this, that as you follow Jesus, admit that there will be things that don't make sense. But trust that he will sustain your faith 
and remain in control. We'll split this passage right uh, in half, not quite even halves, but in half. Verses 18 to 20 and verses 21 to 30. For each one of those halves, we'll look first at the disciples' view from the platform, just from their perspective. What are the problems that they see? And then we'll look at how the station master, Jesus, reassures them in the problems that they see. So I'm labeling the first half of this passage, Jesus's general disclaimer. And just to bring us up to speed, we're picking up John 13 in the middle of Jesus's explanation of why he washed his disciples' feet. Remember that Jesus displays his love for his disciples, not by having his disciples serve him, but by him serving them. And we said that's a little bit of a snapshot about how your relationship with God begins. Not with you doing something for God, but by you receiving what God has done for you in Christ. After that, Jesus explains that if they have really received his love, they'll demonstrate that. They'll show it by reflecting his love. This is what he says is the blessed life in verse 17. The path of blessing, receiving Jesus' love and reflecting his love. But then verse 18 comes in. And it comes in almost like a record scratch. Everything stops. Jesus says, this is the path of blessing, but one of you aren't on it. For example, he's made similar disclaimers before. In John 6, verse 70, he says, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Earlier in chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus tells his disciples, not all of you are clean. Jesus and his crew have now spent the better part of three years together. The disciples have heard Jesus' teaching and Jesus' wisdom. The disciples have been through storms that Jesus calmed. They've rode on waters upon which Jesus walked. The disciples have seen Jesus at a wedding, and they've seen Jesus at a funeral. The disciples have seen Jesus attract thousands And the disciples have witnessed Jesus attract stones and attempt to kill him. You would imagine that having gone through so much together, that this group of guys would have forged very deep bonds. So when Jesus gives this disclaimer, that someone among them isn't clean but cursed, oh, that could feel like a bomb that suddenly dropped in their lap. This disclaimer from Jesus This could send his disciples spiraling into worry and doubt. If it's true that someone among us isn't clean but cursed, they might start to worry about what Jesus can do. If someone's not clean, if someone's cursed, was this an oversight on Jesus's part? Did the supposed station master lose track of one platform in the station? How could Jesus, someone like him, let something like this happen? This disclaimer might spiral the disciples into worrying about who Jesus is. Because if someone so close to Jesus would turn out leaving Jesus, what does that say about Jesus? Does Jesus really change people? Is Jesus actually worth risking everything in order to follow him? If someone this close to him is willing to leave. Does this person who's not clean but is actually cursed, does he know something about Jesus that everybody else doesn't know? Does he know a hidden weak spot or a kryptonite that Jesus has? 
this disclaimer that someone among them isn't clean but cursed. This is like a bomb dropped on their lap. This might send them spiraling. It might make them worry even about themselves. If Jesus says someone among us isn't clean or blessed, then who's to say that I'm safe? Where does all this leave me? This disclaimer could be like a bomb suddenly dropped on their lap. Now, your specific circumstances probably look different, but in your life, I bet you have had several kinds of bombs that have just suddenly dropped on your lap. I'm just thinking about the life of the church at West Creek over the last six months to a year, and it seems like there have been many just bombs suddenly drop on our lap. Three weeks ago, two different doctors, a nurse, a social worker, called my dad and I to university hospitals downtown to tell us that my mom's death was imminent. Laid out all the facts, told us the plans. She said she was gonna pass very soon. Bomb dropped. Or maybe the bomb that was dropped is that you've seen someone who is professed to be a Christian but seems to walk away from the faith. Someone who professed to be a Christian but was then discovered to have embezzled money professed to be a Christian and then discovered to have engaged in a long-standing affair. What kind of bombs have dropped on your lap in your life? But maybe right now what you're going through isn't a situation where a bomb just suddenly goes off, but more like a slow burn. A relationship with someone you love that's grown cold and distant. A job that won't stop being hard. Kids, sorry kids, but kids that never uh, have, that have never-ending challenges. An illness that has symptoms that have lasted so long that it's not just your body that's weary, it's your soul that's weary. The slow burn of loneliness or uselessness or depression. Whether it's a sudden bomb or a slow burn, it's easy to descend the same spiral that the disciples could have descended when Jesus told them this. It's easy to wonder in that situation you're in, what does it say about what Jesus can do? I thought he could do anything. I thought he controlled everything. What does it say about who Jesus is? I thought he was good and loving. I thought he was wise. Where does all this leave me? If something like this could happen, who's to say it won't get worse for me? Friends, all those are, are worries and problems that you see from your one spot on the platform at the train station. And the good news is that the station master speaks into each one of those and reassures you. So that sudden bomb or slow burn in your life can leave you worrying about what Jesus can do. How does Jesus address that? Well, he says, I know whom I have chosen. Now, since he's speaking to his disciples, I think this relates to his choice of disciples. And remember the verse we quoted just a couple of minutes ago, John 6, 70. He says, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. So when Jesus tells them, I know whom I have chosen, it's like he's telling them, the guy who's going to betray me didn't lie on his application to be a disciple and sneak in undetected. He didn't pull a fast one over on me. I knew exactly what I was doing and exactly what this guy would do when I permitted him to be in this group. Now, I hope this alone can at least start to reassure you that anything in your life 
does not come around God's hands as undetected by him. Anything in your life has to come through God's hands. Well, Jesus gives this disclaimer and our disclosure, you might worry about what he can do. Someone among them isn't clean. What does that say about what Jesus can do? Jesus adds, he assures you, he adds that this is happening so that scripture will be fulfilled. Jesus quotes Psalm 41.9, which we read earlier. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. You might've noticed that King David wrote this Psalm. And David writes that he's surrounded by opponents from outright enemies to duplicitous counselors to treacherous friends. In this instance, eating bread at someone's table was a pledge of loyalty. And David's likely writing about a guy named Ahithophel, who was a close advisor. When David's son Absalom rebelled against his dad, Ahithophel went along with Absalom. So here we are in Psalm 41, where enemies oppose David, friends betray David, and it closes with God vindicating David. And Jesus says, this scripture has to be fulfilled. But what's interesting is that when you read Psalm 41, it doesn't read like a promise or like a prediction. Well, it helps to remember that Psalm 41 comes within the entire Old Testament and the whole thing just points forward. Forward to one central figure, that is the Messiah, God's anointed one. And the Old Testament repeatedly tells us that God's anointed one will come through David's line. So over and over again in the Bible, David is treated as a type of Christ. That means David is like a shadow that points forward to the one who casts the shadow. So here in Psalm 41, it's easy to see. Just as David was unjustly opposed, wrongfully betrayed, and ultimately vindicated, so also Jesus, the greater David, will be unjustly opposed, wrongfully betrayed, and ultimately vindicated. Now, what does this have to do with anything? Well, if it were only the case that the sudden bomb or the slow burn in your life has had to come through God's hands, you might say, Steve, that's well and good, but he could still permit that for seemingly random reasons. But by Jesus saying that the scripture will be fulfilled, it's like he's telling you, My permission is always purposeful and never pointless. So that all that happens in your life must come through him and all that happens in your life must come for a greater purpose and plan. Jesus gives a disclaimer. Not all of you are clean. This could send them spiraling. It's like a sudden bomb that leaves them worrying, not just about what Jesus can do. It might make them worry about who Jesus is. If someone so close to Jesus is going to leave him, then what does that say about Jesus? Is there a hidden side to him that we don't see? Well, to address that worry, Jesus says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. That phrase, I am he, has come up in John before, and it's actually closer to I am. This is a title reserved for God alone. This is a way of Jesus telling his disciples that, guys, when the dust all settles, when I die and am buried and rise again, and you're trying to put the pieces all back together, remember that I told you all of this before it was going to happen. 
And only God knows the end from the beginning. Only God knows the future and can predict it with 100% accuracy. So guys, when you're trying to figure out whether or not it's worth sticking out your neck to follow me, remember, you're not following a mere human teacher. You are following God the Son in the flesh. So you see what Jesus is doing. By telling them of the betrayal in advance, he takes an awful event that could potentially break their faith and turns it into an event that can actually bolster their faith. If Jesus can do that with as awful an event as Judas betraying him, do you think he can do that with any awful event in your life? Transform it from something that could break your faith into something that bolsters your faith. Praise God for our redeeming king. Well, if the disciples are still spiraling after Jesus drops this bomb on their lap, they might be wondering about where this leaves them. And if Jesus can't handle something, if Jesus isn't who he says he is, then where does that leave me? Jesus addresses this worry from the platform in verse 20. I appreciate how the old English pastor J.C. Ryle paraphrases what Jesus says. In verse 20, it's as if Jesus says, even though one of you is unfaithful, even though one of you falls away, persevere and fear not. And remember the high dignity of your office. Because I solemnly declare to you that he who receives you or he who receives anyone else to whom I send to preach the gospel receives me because you are my representatives. And this isn't all. He that receives me receives not only me, but God the Father who sent me. So you have no cause to be ashamed of your calling, however unworthily some may behave. Maybe that sudden bomb or slow burn in your life is because someone in the church around you has behaved unworthily. Let John 13, verse 20, reassure you if you're wondering where that leaves you. John 13, 20 tells you that bad news in the church Though real, that bad news in the church, though painful, but bad news in the church doesn't eliminate the good news of the gospel. In other words, don't let fake followers of Jesus make you conclude that Jesus is any less real. Don't let fake followers of Jesus let you conclude that Jesus isn't worth following or representing. People may let you down, but the Lord won't. That's the first half of this passage. In the second half, Jesus moves from a general disclaimer to a specific disclosure. He states clearly that the person who is unclean and cursed will betray him. And when he's asked, Jesus identifies that the one who will betray him is Judas. And then John peels back the curtain even more. He reveals that Satan himself now personally possesses Judas as he leaves the supper to betray Jesus. Now, there is a lot going on here in the supper room. And the second half really continues the startling news that we've begun to hear in the first half. And we just stand in one limited perspective on the platform. And we might be left wondering several things. If it's true that someone's gonna betray Jesus and that person is possessed by Satan himself, well, what does that say of Jesus's heart toward this person? And what does that say about Jesus' church if someone, if someone like this could go in his disciples really undetected? What does that say of his church? 
And if Satan possesses one of his disciples, then what does that say about Jesus's rule over all heaven and earth? You might be wondering those things, and this passage addresses them. What does it say of Jesus's heart toward the person who will betray him? Reminder, we've seen how Jesus chose Judas with full knowledge of what Judas would do. And now that he's revealed that someone will betray him, you might start to wonder, does this mean that Jesus was faking his love for Judas as much as Judas was faking his love for Jesus? It reminds me of another group of 12 from earlier in the Bible, way back at the end of Genesis, Jacob and his 12 sons. What was it that started all of the trouble for Jacob's son, Joseph? It was that his dad so obviously treated him differently than the rest of his brothers. So I think that the disciples didn't suspect Judas. It not only shows that Judas could blend in very well, it also shows you something about Jesus, that Jesus never tipped his hand, that Jesus never treated Judas any differently than anyone else. So for example, when Jesus deployed his disciples two by two into various towns in order for them to minister and serve, it doesn't say that, you know, Judas pulled, that Jesus pulled Judas aside and said, you know what, pal, except for you, you're not going to go because I know what you're all about. When John wrote in John 6, 70, when Jesus says, I chose all of you, yet one of you is a devil, John doesn't add the detail that when Jesus said this, he looked at Judas directly in the face and everybody knew who he was talking about. Or even here, as they enter the upper room in John 13, they didn't all go in the room and there's no detail that says, oh, when Judas came in, Jesus held him back. And he told him, you know what, Judas, this is our last meal together. You have no part of it. There is no indication that Jesus cheated, treated Judas any differently. As a matter of fact, one amazing detail, it says that Jesus handed Judas a morsel of bread so that must mean that Judas was sitting right next to Jesus. <laughs> At least it would make sense. John on his right, Judas on his left. Jesus sat Judas in a place of honor. But we could just say that Jesus was only outwardly impartial toward Judas, but he remained inwardly bitter toward his betrayer. Well, I think Jesus' heart for Judas comes out in verse 21 where John writes that he was troubled in spirit. That's the same phrase used when Jesus stood before Lazarus's tomb. Like then, just because Jesus knows what's gonna happen doesn't mean Jesus is detached or unaffected by what's going to happen or the people who are involved. And I think there's a really good case that Jesus actually truly did love the one who was going to betray him. So my friend, I wonder if that changes how you view certain people in your life. If Jesus loves Judas. Ezekiel thirty three eleven, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Jesus has the same heart as the father. He is patient toward those who slander him. He is patient toward those who rebel against him. He is patient toward those who bring him sorrow. If you're a Christian, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, isn't that how you're sitting here today? If he didn't love you when you didn't love him, what hope would there have been for you? My friend, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus, 
If Jesus loves Judas, there is hope for you. Romans 5, 8, a familiar verse, but a precious one, says that God demonstrated his love for us that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were good people, while we were sinners. Let me assure you, if you're not a Christian, that Jesus has paid for every slander. He's paid for every rebellion. He's, he's paid for every betrayal for all those who will turn from living for themselves and trust and follow him. If you haven't done that, would you talk to someone, maybe even me, about what it means to do that today? I wonder if Jesus' heart for Judas can change how you view yourself. Because if, if Jesus can love his betrayer, what does that say about how Jesus can still love you? We read about it earlier in Revelation 3. These group of Christians in Laodicea, Jesus charges them with being lukewarm. They've grown complacent in their spiritual walk. They've grown indifferent toward him. They're consumed with other things beside him. Has it ever described you as a Christian? It's described me, maybe not anybody else. So when you betray Jesus yet again and you bring him sorrow, what is his heart toward you? Of course, Jesus isn't a pushover. He cares that his people honor his name and walk the good path of holiness. But you and I might assume that Jesus' love for you fluctuates as based on your love for him. But Jesus' heart isn't detached from people like you either. Revelation, Revelation 3 tells you that he pursues the lukewarm Christians. He knocks on the door. He seeks close personal fellowship with them again. So my friend, if you have strayed from the Lord in any way, he is ready to meet you again with open arms and not a pointed finger. Why don't you turn back to him today? In the second half of our passage, Jesus specifically discloses that someone will betray him. From your limited perspective on the train station platform, that can leave you wondering about Jesus's heart. And it can leave you wondering about Jesus's church. Because someone as close to Jesus himself as Judas was turns out to be a poser, as the kids back in my day would say it. And if that's true, that can leave you deeply cynical about the church. Someone as close to Judas can turn out to be a poser. That can leave you thinking, church is just filled with hypocrites. Church is filled with people who've just learned how to blend in. Because look at Judas, this guy was put in charge of the finances. People thought he was wise. People thought he was trustworthy. Turns out all that was fake. That can leave you very jaded toward church. And I know that's where a lot of people are. Listen, by no means does the Bible deny the reality of counterfeit Christians. But as I've heard it explained, think of counterfeit Christians like counterfeit currency. Yeah, it might do damage. But you know, a counterfeit is a good proof that the real thing exists. What else would it have to copy? That someone as close to Jesus himself like Judas was would turn out to be a poser? Man, that could leave those in the church feeling very self-righteous. You might read about someone like Judas, and you might start to think, however subconsciously, you might start to think, you know, Jesus must love me because I'm one of the good Christians. I read my Bible every day. I come to church every Sunday. I pray. 
I'm not like those lazy Christians who are around only once a month, who never read their Bible, who don't know where the books of the Bible are. Jesus loves me because I'm loyal, because I've grown, because I've been here. That's why he loves me. Well, if that's you, let's think about the two other disciples highlighted in this passage. First, there's Peter. You remember that when Peter said he must suffer, when Jesus said he must suffer, die, and rise again back in Matthew 16, Peter has the gall to get in the Lord's face and basically tell Jesus, Jesus, you are out of your mind. And then Jesus says, Peter, you are being a spokesperson for Satan. Then the other disciple highlighted in this passage, he's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think there's good evidence that this is John, the human author of this book. John never mentions himself by name elsewhere. Other gospel accounts show that along with Peter and John's brother James, that John was especially close to Jesus. And here John is sitting next to Jesus. We're also told that Peter and John used to be business partners as fishermen. And the way that Peter communicates to the disciple whom Jesus loves shows that there's a familiarity between them. So if this is John, let's talk about John. Not just on one occasion, on multiple occasions, John and his brother James argue and vie for the best place in Jesus's kingdom. John and his brothers James are so fiery, so reactionary that Jesus gives them the nickname Sons of Thunder. Of course, it makes sense that Judas would blend in to a group of guys like this. So my friend, unless you read about Judas and become self-righteous, remember that the church of Jesus Christ is made up only of sinners. And I think John knows that. When John labels himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's not out of self-righteous arrogance. That's out of a humble wonder that Jesus would love someone like me. It's been said that the church isn't so much a museum, a museum of saints as it is a hospital for sinners. But the thing is, those in the church could read about Judas, someone close to Jesus as him, being a poser, and they might start to wonder about the church. They might start to feel careless or hopeless. They might think something like, you know, yeah, the church is a hospital for sinners. It's a bunch of broken people, and we're always going to stay that way. Now, it's true, Christians still battle against the disease of sin. But as I've heard it put, don't you forget that you are on your deathbed, but you received the cure. The good news that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin, and the good news that Jesus rose again to break the power of your sin. So, yeah, the church might be a hospital for sinners. But you have the cure, and you should expect to grow in health. That means you won't be sinless, but you can sin less. And you should expect that one day that your disease of sin will be completely eradicated from you. So don't read about Judas and be hopeless and careless about the sin you still battle. You have the cure, and you can grow. Jesus gets specific about who will betray him. This might spiral you, leaving you worrying about his hearts, leaving you worrying about his church. And you read that this guy was possessed by Satan, and it might leave you worrying about Jesus's rule. 
And that one last startling detail of this passage comes in verses 26 and 27. It says, So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. A little bit of context. Back in chapter 13, verse 2, we're told that the devil had put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And we explained how Judas has already displayed a greedy heart that was indifferent toward Jesus. So that means Satan didn't need to create fresh evil in Judas. No, Satan just needed to point Judas to a fresh opportunity. Now, at this point in chapter 13, Satan more thoroughly possesses Judas. It's as if Judas cracked the door and left it open. Now, with all this going on, you can start to worry about the power and the extent of Jesus' rule. The Bible pulls no punches that under Jesus' rule, Satan is able to deceive and damage Jesus' church. He seduces. He attacks. He is the roaring lion of 1 Peter 5, prowling around, seeing who he might devour. He's the dragon of Revelation chapter 12, who can't touch Jesus, so he goes after Jesus' church. While Satan might not be able to snatch you from God's hands if you're a Christian, he can certainly sour your relationship with God. While Satan might not be able to snatch you from God's hands if you're a Christian, he can certainly sideline you from God's service. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that you shouldn't be ignorant of Satan's designs, Satan's strategies, Satan's plots, what the old pastor Thomas Brooks calls Satan's devices. In 1652, Thomas Brooks wrote some 300-page book reflecting on just that one verse, 2 Corinthians 2.11. These guys have way more time on their hands. He called it precious remedies against Satan's devices. What was the device that Satan, under Christ's rule, used against Judas? We don't get all the -the behind-the-scenes footage, but John has already told us that Judas was a thief. Thomas Brooks writes that Satan loves to sail with the wind. So examples, King David was inclined to be proud of his people, so Satan entices David to number his people. Judas loves money, so Satan sends an opportunity to Judas to get paid. You want to know how Satan will tempt you? Just know yourself well and consider what you find tempting. He loves to sail with the wind. For Judas, Satan presents the world and all of its goods as sweeter than Jesus and its promises. He is still active with that device today. Thomas Brooks suggests several remedies for that device. One of them is to remember how weak and powerless the things of the world are. I love this quote. He says this. Remember that the crown of gold cannot cure the headache nor the velvet slipper ease the gout, nor the jewel about the neck take away the pain of the teeth. Maybe Judas would have done well to know that 30 pieces of silver could not save his soul. So this specific disclosure that someone will betray him and that someone is possessed by Satan might make you wonder about Jesus' rule. Here we see that as Jesus rules, Satan devises many ways to deceive and damage Jesus' people. But this passage should also give you confidence 
that you can resist our old ancient foe, as Martin Luther puts it. Judas might be possessed by Satan, but Judas can't help but to obey Jesus's word. Did you notice that? When Jesus tells Judas to go, he can't help but going. This reminds you that Satan might roar, but Satan's on a leash. It might seem like a long leash at times, but at the end of that leash is the one who holds all authority in heaven and on earth. So let John 13 remind you that Jesus is sovereign and Satan isn't. And so in order to fight the battle against Satan, you rest in Jesus, not yourself. To continue from Luther and that old hymn, if we confided in our own strength, our striving would be losing. But the right man is on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Those who have confided, who have trusted in Jesus, can take heart that by his death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. That Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That through Jesus, we are more than conquerors in him who loved us. And we can take heart that when Satan tempts you to, to despair and tells you of the guilt within, you can look upward and see him there who made an end to all of your sin. Now, this passage ends on a brief, really mysterious, almost ominous note. Look at the end of verse 30. And it was night. This could have several layers of meaning beyond just a physical description. It might symbolize that Judas is now swallowed up in darkness. It might harken back to John 12, 35, when Jesus said that he, the light of the world, will only be around a little while longer. So as the night, come, the, the, as the night comes, the hour of his death approaches. We've been talking a lot about the platform at the train station. Maybe right now you stand at one platform, and not only is it hard enough to see why the trains come and go, it's hard enough to see the whole plan but it's even worse because it feels like it's night and it feels dark. And when it's that way, you can start to lose heart and you can start to wonder, can I really trust the station master, the one who holds it all together? John 13 is meant to assure you that yes, you can. Not only because the station master assures you of his ability, not only because he assures you of his character, not only because he assures you of his plan, but you can trust him also because he stepped into the darkness himself. He submitted to the betrayal. He gave himself up to wicked men. He laid down his life under the judgment of God the Father on the cross where again, for three hours, it was dark. And he did all of that for you. So you can trust him while you're in the platform in the dark and unable to see because the light of the world has come and the darkness has not overcome him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you know our frame and that you know we are dust and that you speak into our weaknesses. You love and forgive us and sanctify us away from our sin. And you give us ample reasons, every reason, to trust you. But oh, for grace to trust you more. We pray that you would lead those here who have never taken that first step to trust and follow you to do so today. And we pray for those who have taken many steps, that you would hold them fast and sustain their faith. 
that if there's something in their lives that they would consider like a bomb or a slow burn, that you would transform that event from something that could break their faith into something that would bolster and hold their faith in you intact. Do this for the glory of your name and the good of your people. Amen.